Before we dig into our text, let's ask his blessing for the preaching and our meditation on his word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us bereft of guidance and insight in this world, but that you've given us your word and your spirit to guide us. And Lord, it is therefore with thankfulness that we are able to open it up this morning and to learn from it and to apply what we have been learning to our lives. Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts, our minds, that you will grant us understanding. And Lord, that you would also, through your grace, grant us the ability, the willingness to be obedient to the truths of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May I firstly just commend you for uh, praying for and supporting the work of the Hub. Um, the Hub was planted from uh, South Bowman Reformed Church, my home church, and the Lord's really been blessing that ministry over the years. It is in a suburb called Armstrong Creek, which is a very new development uh, in Geelong, and it is just wonderful to hear the stories of how the gospel is going out into that community. So um, please do continue to pray for and support that work. Now to our text, um, or maybe to, to another text, uh, almost as long as the Bible, um, the Lord of the Rings. Um, there's, a, there's a moment uh, quite near the beginning of the Lord of the Rings um, that I'm really glad Tolkien put in there. Uh, the little fellowship is about to, uh, to go on their seemingly interminable quest. Um, but then there's this poignant pause. Uh, Sam, Frodo's faithful companion, uh, reaches a spot where he suddenly stops dead in his tracks. And the explanation for that was that Sam suddenly realized that he's never been further from home than that very spot uh, that he's standing at. So one more step and he will break a record. Um, one more step, and he will be going further away from home. And if you know the story, he would go very, very far indeed uh, from home. And, and I think on some level we can all identify uh, with that. Home represents what is safe. Uh, Sam would probably still have had a uh, quite fulfilling life. He may have married Rosie, um, raised little hobbit children, uh, and be happy. But um, the, the stories that he would be able to tell would probably be a, a little bit more, well, let's say, boring, because he was, of course, about to go on a cracking adventure. But we can kind of sympathize with that feeling of, of dread in terms of going into the unknown. But I think all of us understand that the unknown is where growth lies. The unknown is where dragons are to be slain. The unknown is where... Um, Ultimately, much of the purpose of our lives will be found. And so I think as people, we've always, or many of us, have, uh, have a fascination with the idea of journeying. Of course, the Lord of the Rings itself is a, is a great narrative of, of journey, but it's not alone, is it? Um, so many other of the, uh, the great works of Western civilization deals with this theme, perhaps the greatest medieval uh, literary production, The Divine Comedy of Dante, starts again with two roads diverging and a journey to be 
undertaken. And this can, of course, also be applied to our faith. Uh, besides the Bible in the English-speaking world for a long, long time, uh, the second best-selling book was a book with a journey at its heart, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, of course, which casts the spiritual life in the form of a journey towards, as Bunyan called it, the celestial city. The Bible itself, of course, contains uh, many journeys, but perhaps none so famous and celebrated as the one in which we are this morning, uh, as far as the text is concerned. It has everything. It has long distances. It has fear. It has death. It has challenges. It started quite some while ago with a miraculous event, Moses appearing uh, before, or God appearing to Moses out of a a burning bush. Uh, Moses having to go down to the Pharaoh and saying, if you remember the Charlton Heston movie in a deep, sonorous voice, let my people go. Um, and we all know, you know the kind of drama that unfolded um, around that with the, uh, the ten plagues and ultimately um, death, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Um, a car chase or a wagon chase rather, uh, all the way to, to the Red Sea. This great miracle of the sea opening the people of Israel going through, rejoicing at the other side, celebrating God's goodness, going on towards the Holy Land. And then, numbers. It seems like, you know, one of the greatest anti-climaxes in any journey story. This, I think, as you may know, is where many, many efforts to read the Bible from cover to cover founders. Uh, because... Chapter after chapter in the, uh, in the early parts of Numbers is just that. You know, so many of this tribe, so many of this tribe. This person descended that person, and there were so many in that tribe. And we kind of think, whoa, you know, we've been enjoying this wonderful journey tale. And yet suddenly we get bogged down in what is essentially a census report. Uh, why on earth? And when the, um, the Latin scholar Jerome who uh, was, of course, the the translator of the Bible into the Latin language, uh, came across this book of Moses. He therefore gave it the title Numbers. But, of course, as you will know, there's quite a bit more going on here. uh, Because, ultimately, it can can be seen as a a kind of a muster. You know, the, the, the people being gathered... And of course, as you gather, you need to know who you are gathering, what your strength is, and how you will then be able to uh, take these people into the land. And this is exactly what we see in chapters 1 verse uh, one to 9 of the book of Numbers. Uh, the people are preparing to go into the land. We see a census. Uh, also, Moses takes care that worship is organized. We see the Levites uh, being commissioned to serve as priests. And then eventually by chapter 10, uh, we're on the move again. Uh, for these chapters, every single step, almost like Sam going towards wherever he is going, every step in chapter 10 to 12 takes us closer to the promised land. You know, we, we're going to see that joyous moment where the great promise that God made that they will conquer the land will be fulfilled. But it is not a joyous ta- time. It's dominated 
by complaints about the catering. The food is really, really monotonous, they say. Uh, they, of course, get the manna, as you will know. And, and God broadens their diet a little bit by also sending them quail. But it is just, it, it seems wrong, you know, in so many ways. Uh, they're, they're supposed to go to this joyful, joyful event, and yet uh, what they complain about is that for a few more days, they will have an unvaried diet. You know, so, so it kind of introduces uh, this theme of, of tension, one might say. And then we come to chapter 13. By chapter 13, we assume that the natural next step is that the people will move into the promised land. But, of course, things are rarely that simple with the people of Israel. It's the first step towards conquering the land. Twelve scouts, or spies, are sent to report on the condition of the land and the strength of the inhabitants. And that, this is where we picked up the story as Joel started to read. The scouts return, but it seems that they've been on two different planets. Um, the essential details of the story are the same. It's a good land. It, uh, it flows with milk and honey. But ten of them state it can never be conquered. People are big. Um, you know, and they, they list the tribes and how afraid they are. And they say in a, in a telling phrase, we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. Uh, in, in front of them. You know, we are scared. Two of them, of course, Joshua and Caleb, acknowledge the strength of the Canaanites, but maintain that they can conquer the land with God's help. There's this theme emerging here. One side says, this land devours those who go into it. So, never mind that God brought us all the way. We'll be chewed up and spat out. Joshua and Caleb says exactly the opposite. With another food metaphor, uh, the people will be like bread for us. We will be able, of course, they're not saying that they're turning into cannibals or something, uh, but, but, but they're saying that you know, we'll be able to conquer them and live off this land. And of course, we see that the people of Israel choose to go with the majority report. They refuse to take one single step. In fact, they're ready to unleash violence against the, uh, the two spies who brought the bad report. They are willing to pick up stones to stone them. They don't want to be challenged to go into the land. And then God intervenes. We uh, haven't read that far, but, but, but of course, consequences will follow. Instead of a short march over to the promised land, the people are condemned to roam the desert for another 40 years. So if you thought the Lord of the Rings was a long journey, um, this one trumps all of them. A very, very costly mistake. So again, just to reiterate. Good land, milk and honey, no question or controversy about this. But then... People are powerful. Ten of the spies say, we are like grasshoppers before them. Fear gripped the people. They wondered why they were there. And because of this, the 40 years in the desert follow. Maybe it's worth just to read again in full uh, Joshua and Caleb's report. 
chapter 14, verse 6, if you have your Bible open. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. This is, of course, a sign of mourning. Um, maybe perhaps mourning at how the people could forget so quickly who God is. And said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. If the Lord were pleased, is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So this is perhaps one of the, the better known uh, narratives in the Bible, uh, because it, it deals with you know, such a moment of tension in the, uh, in the journey of Israel. The kind of expected narrative of moving from glory to glory uh, into a joyous, triumphant procession into the promised land comes to an utter screeching halt. It stops in its track. And the nation now marks time for another 40 years uh, in the desert. And we might say, well, that's uh, wonderful to, to know about the history of Israel, but how is this relevant to, to our lives and the journey that we are on? And I want to suggest this morning, in terms of applying it to our own lives, that we can learn a few things uh, from Israel and from their reaction to what the Lord uh, sh- told them to do and their uh, ultimate disobedience. First point I want to make is that to forget is dangerous. We um, can sometimes think of forgetfulness as just you know, something harmful or perhaps something just embarrassing or, or funny. A few years ago, I was living in London at the time. I had to be in the city um, early in the morning, so I took my car, drove it to the station, um, came back home, worked from home at the time. Uh, later in the day, not nearly as hurried as I was, and I took the bus back home. Um, later that evening, I had to meet my wife. Uh, we were supposed to go somewhere and uh, went down to where my car is parked and thought, oh, my car's stolen. And um, then I realized, oops, it's still at the station. You know, so, um, anyway, so I had to take the bus back to the station to go and get my car. And of course, halfway there, Chanel, my wife, phoned, said, where are you? And I said, I'm on the bus. <laughs> you know, she's very quietly, but what are you doing in the bus? We're supposed to go by car. You know, and I kind of had to explain um, that I forgot my car at the station. And I could hear a few people around me sniggering. You know, we kind of... Um, react that way, where, where people just forget, you know, and, and, and I probably have more stories than most of, of doing that. I'm pretty scatterbrained uh, when it comes to these kinds of things. So that, that's kind of how we view forgetfulness. But the Bible has a very different take on forgetfulness. Uh, the Bible tells us that it can actually be pretty dangerous sometimes, especially when we forget who God is, when we forget God's promises, and when we forget God's deeds in the past. It's therefore quite interesting that one of the most persistent commands in the first five books of the Bible is a simple word, remember, remember, remember the Lord your God. Why? Because we are prone to forget, and when we forget, we find ourselves in difficult and dangerous situations. And for Israel, this was a deadly kind of forgetfulness. Allow me just to very briefly catalog what many of these people have experienced. 
The same people who are now listening to the report of the 12 spies coming through. They experienced the 10 plagues in Egypt, where God miraculously intervened, not once, but 10 times, in order to turn the heart of the Pharaoh. Many of them stood at the Red Sea, their hearts going like this in their chests. You know, the, the Pharaohs chasing up behind them. Sea opened. They were able to walk through. When they were wondering where to go, they had a cloud leading them by day, fire by night. They didn't have to wonder about the existence of God, about his care, about his providential looking after them. They just had to look up. God led them. They had manna that fed them every day, of course. They complained about it, but you know, they didn't have to worry about hunger. They even saw the face of their leader, Moses, shining to such an extent that they had to look away after he uh, received the law of God. Seriously, God could not have done more to convince them that he was with them and that he intended to bless them, that he will keep his promises. Yet, they wail about being lost in the desert. They fear the defenders. They, in all seriousness, say, let's get a leader to take us back to Egypt, to that place where we were in bondage. What happened? They forgot. They forgot all the good things that God had done for them. Or they chose to ignore them. And they simply focused on the present, on the sticky situation that they found themselves in. It's so easy to judge them. Say, so how could they be so stupid? But let me ask you. Are you perhaps not in this position? Am I perhaps not in this position? Are we not sometimes people who willfully forget God's promises, God's good deeds to us in the past? Are we perhaps not sometimes in a situation where we only look at the circumstances that we're in and not focusing at the same time at how God promised that he will pull us through? He tells us, Philippians uh, 1 verse 6, that he will complete the good work that he started in us. Are you holding to that promise? Or are you allowing current circumstances to overwhelm you? The next thing that Israel were forcefully reminded of, and this is a, a serious and a troubling point, that lack of faith has consequences. Because ultimately their forgetfulness brought them to the point where they did not exercise faith in God, where they stopped trusting that God will pull them through, that he will keep his promises. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is one of those that we would sometimes just skip over without really spending any time thinking about it. We find it in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 1 verse 2. It simply says, It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. You might be thinking, this is really deep. Um, it, it is, really, in the sense that Horeb is not very far from where the events that we're reading about now 
took place. Kadesh Barnea is on the border with Canaan. So this verse tells us that if they, you know, girded up their loins, um, walked to Canaan, it would have taken them 11 days. So a third of a month. How long did it take? 40 long years of wandering in the desert. Israel, in a sense, had a choice. Trusting God, getting there in 11 days, or choosing not to trust and experiencing the ultimate delayed departure in all of world history. It took them 40 years, and in the end, only those who were younger than 20 when the spies returned, and Joshua and Caleb made it. Their lack of faith caused God to say the following from verse 21. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole, whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God explicitly references the miracles that all these people have seen, their forgetfulness, and he calls that forgetfulness and disobedience, contempt. And that's a harsh thing to hear. And it was a harsh experience for the Israelites. The Israelites had to realize that it was not only God who had responsibilities through his covenant to them. They were in turn also f- called to follow, trust, and obey God. And those who failed to do so had to face the consequences. This is hard, I think, for us to hear in our own lives. But we need to heed the warnings of Scripture as well. When God calls on us to trust in Him, to put our faith in Him, to live our lives in obedience to Him, these are serious words that should be taken seriously. Lastly, we need to ask God for the ability to see with the eyes of faith. Again, as I pointed out earlier, it is notable that Joshua and Caleb saw exactly what the others saw, that the land was fertile and that the inhabitants were powerful. Yet their assessment differs totally from that of the majority. They say, we can conquer it. We may think that they're just saber-rattling, you know, saying, oh, we're strong, you know, uh, attempting to kind of uh, drum up some enthusiasm. That's not what's happening here. They're saying it because they remembered that word again. They remembered who God is. They remembered what he brought them through. And so they qualify their assessment with a very important preface. If the Lord is pleased with us, we can conquer it. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land of milk and honey. They were able to see, in other words, with the eyes of faith, and that made all the difference. They realized that if God was with them, no one could defeat them. If God was not with them, they won't defeat anyone. They realized that God was still the same God who brought them this, uh, this far 
and that he was able to complete what he began. We should not think of Joshua and Caleb simply uh, of, uh, as heroes in the kind of superhero mold. They were not necessarily exceptionally brave, but they were heroes of the faith because they were willing to trust God. A little bit later, God tells Moses that Caleb, one of the two, has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. Numbers 14, 24. This is why he and Joshua will see the land. Not because he is necessarily exceptionally brave, but he was willing and able to trust God. So we think about our own journey. Let me just remind Myself and all of us, some of the principles that we see in this really famous story. Firstly, forgetting is dangerous. We need to be constantly reminded of God's faithfulness and his promises. Secondly, disregarding God's promises is a very unwise thing to do and will carry consequences. And We also need to trust God for the ability to see with the eyes of faith. And so as Christians, people who, of course, live long after these events, as we look at our own lives, we need to seriously ask ourselves about the journey that we're on, the journey that through God's grace, uh, he has brought to us and that we now need to bring to completion. Because, of course, journeying is not only a theme in world literature or here in uh, the first books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, but of course, our spiritual lives are also described in the same terms. In the book of, book of Hebrews 1 and 2 Peter, we are often called strangers, aliens, pilgrims uh, in this world. People on our way to a better, a heavenly city. In the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself, we um, perhaps get this most clearly discussed in uh, John chapter 14. Jesus says, in the uh, home of my father, there are many dwellings, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know the way there, he says. And then Philip famously, of course, says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Um, in other words, this is a strange journey. We don't even know the destination. And Jesus, John 14, verse 6, famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, except by me. As Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are therefore also on a journey, a journey to the house of the fathers, in which there are many, of the Father, in which there are many dwellings. And the way in which, or the way along which we travel there, is of course through faith, trust, and obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us, who gave his life for us, and who now, I believe, also call on us as we travel on this journey, not to a physical promised land called Canaan, but to the ultimate destiny of our souls, to be with God, he wants to remind us that on this journey, that we should not forget his grace and his love, that we should trust that he will complete the work that he's begun in us, that we should not disregard the promises that he's made, and that even in the midst of trials, tribulations, and struggles, that he will help us to see with the eyes of faith. If you're on that journey today, 
the journey following the way, the way who is Jesus. I want to encourage you in that and pray that you will have much courage as you know that he will complete the work that he's begun on you. If you haven't even set out on this journey, if you're perhaps a little bit like Sam, not having even crossed uh, into being on a journey, may I encourage you to look into Jesus, the way, the one whom we journey towards and along in a sense because he is the only way to bring us to the completion of our earthly journey, to bring us to the Father. He calls you along that journey. May we never be like the majority in this story as we contemplate our own following of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us to see with the eyes of faith, to trust him, to remember his goodness and to glorify him along the way, along the way in which we travel. May he bless us as we do so. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and we thank you for a passage that's in many ways a, a salutary experience to, to read uh, because it shows in uh, such graphic detail in a sense of how much can go wrong when we forget, when we disregard your promises, when we don't trust, when we don't see with the eyes of faith. It is easy, Lord, to be, in a sense, historically judgmental, looking back at the people of Israel and, and kind of asking how they could be so dumb. But Lord, we recognize that in our own lives, in our own following of you, in our own journeys, we sometimes make the same mistake. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've revealed yourself as the way. And as we journey along this way, Lord, we pray that you will help us to trust in you, to take from your hand the forgiveness and the restoration that you've won for us on the cross and through the empty grave. And that you'll help us, Lord, to remember your goodness and to trust you in all circumstances, even when things perhaps look grim, that we will know that ultimately there's a place prepared for us. Be with us on the journey there, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.